Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, the ARC for your innovation podcast. Today, we'll be talking to Sam Kulkarni, CEO of CRISPR Therapeutics, and joining me is Kathy Wood, CEO, CIO, and founder of ARK Invest. So, Kathy and Sam, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So nice to have you both. Um, I think first we should start, especially because we have Kathy on today, just talking about the more sort of broad biotech industry. It's been a tumultuous week this week. This is the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference Week, which is usually a really interesting big week for biotech. Um, but, uh, you know, coming out of this week, there's been uh, not a ton of news um, and maybe some disappointed investors. So maybe if you can speak a little bit about um, some of the more macro trends we're seeing that maybe affect the biotech market. Yeah, I'm happy to start. I think um, uh, I think this is an exciting time to be in biotech. Uh, 20 years out after we've sequenced the human genome, we're starting to see the fruits of genomics. We know so much more about human biology. We have so many more tools at our disposal. I really do believe that the we're going to see a roaring 20s version of biotech um, over the next few years. And uh, from a fundamental standpoint, I'm quite excited because one, we have many more modalities that are now offering cures as opposed to medicines that just cure symptoms or treat symptoms. Uh, we now have at our disposal the ability to diagnose and understand many more diseases than we did previously. Um, and at this point, for me, uh, as we look at CRISPR therapeutics in the future, it's all about reimagining medicine. I think we completely changed the way we think about medicine over the next 10 to 20 years. Okay, and I will uh, chime in here. Uh, we couldn't be more excited as well, uh, Sam. Uh, and, uh, and yet we're faced with a situation where macro factors are determining the, the course, the recent course, uh, of uh, of the genomics companies, we we do believe we're in a genomics revolution, and to be honest, it's shocking to see uh, CRISPR therapeutics uh, stock and other stocks in the genomics space uh, having uh, they've been cut by two thirds uh, and uh, are back to levels that we saw in 2018-2019 uh, when. Uh, we were having to go through the CRISPR twin controversy in China. It makes no sense because, uh, because uh, largely because of uh, CRISPR therapeutics' uh, success in in showing us that uh, there are cures out there for disease, beta thalassemia, sickle cell, um, and the stocks so much lower than when those success stories came out. 
Uh, I think the problem is fears of inflation and valuation. Valuation algorithms seem to be focusing only on valuation. And it's just been one one way down, frankly, and uh, with no thought. It's been indiscriminate. And we think uh, uh, if you are right, Sam, and we believe you're right, uh, that the roaring 20s will, we will in hindsight look back and say, wow. If I can add to that, um, what also if you say, which is to put it all in context, you know, the entire market capitalization of the top 20 pharma companies is 2.5 trillion. And the entire market capitalization of all the biotech companies out there is less than a trillion dollars. Combined, it's the same market capitalization as one Apple. You know, if you think about all the advances we're making to improve human longevity, to treat diseases, improve quality of life, um, that all adds up to a lot more than I think communications and everything we're doing with our phones. And so I think there is a mismatch in how we're looking at the industry overall, how we're thinking about value created. And frankly, I think there's a bit of a lag because people think it's a regulated, regulated industry and there's a time lag to value recognition until you get to the market. But I, I don't think that's the case with this pace of innovation. Uh, and I think certainly you'll see more broader recognition of the biopharma field in general. Um, and I think people taking notice of all the innovation because it's more of a patient-centric, you know, it's niched sort of innovation. It's not like you're seeing it on your phone every day. You don't get that broad base awareness. Obviously, with the COVID pandemic, everyone now has seen the power of what biotech can do for humanity. Uh, but I do certainly think that there's there's going to be uh, a more broader recognition of all the innovation that's happening over the next few years. Uh, I think the the genomic space. Uh, is not alone in terms of the way the market is treating it. Uh, we are comparing this period to the late 90s when investors were you know, falling all over each other to get into deals and to get into this new thing called the internet revolution. Absolutely uh, willing to value stocks based on potential eyeballs 10 years out. It was a ridiculous time, right? Uh, now, the reality of the seeds that were planted way back then, as you, as you said, Sam, uh, we sequenced the first whole human genome in 2003, nearly 20 years ago. So the seeds were planted in the 90s. Uh, and it's taken uh, these 20 years for cost to fall to a low enough level and for the technologies to actually be right in order to deliver the genomic revolution. Uh, and yet, as, as this is happening, investors are doing the opposite of what they did in the late 90s. It's actually a beautiful setup. If you had uh, stayed away from the internet stocks uh, based on those, uh, 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 those costs being too high, uh, and the technology not being ready, you would have done well in the late 90s. Uh, and uh, because the late 90s ended badly, of course. Uh, now you you can see with artificial intelligence and cloud and, uh, uh, and all these technologies that are ready, these companies are scaling magnificently. I believe that in the genomic space, investors who are afraid right now are going to come back because the results, as you say, Sam, 
are, are astonishing. We're talking about cures. And maybe we can talk a little bit about cost then, right? Because that's something that comes up all the time. You know, uh, we posted this on Twitter and we asked some of, um, you know, people who were engaging with us to ask some potential questions. And that's one that came up. So, you know, what do you think um, these therapies can cost? And as Kathy mentioned, we also think of things from a cost decline perspective. So cost both the, uh, the patient, but also your costs and how you can think of it from a cost decline perspective, maybe using rights law, but um, no need for any calculations or anything like that. No, it's interesting that you mentioned rights law. And uh, for those who are not aware of rights law, it was um, the realization that as you produce more at scale, your cost of production goes down. Now, the interesting thing is the, the applicability of rights law is not innovation. So uh, at, at CRISPR, we always talk about this, which is one, uh, why has drug development not yielded the returns that you think it should yield? One, because each drug takes a billion dollars to develop these days. Now, in the future, as you understand the genomics, as you understand the disease, as you understand each patient, it shouldn't be the case. Because once you develop sort of the drug development system, you should be able to develop drugs on a more efficient basis. And that's one of the things that where right, rights law applies uh, for drug development. The second piece of this is the learning. You know, the nature of product innovation in biotech is completely different now. Used to be in the small molecule world, you made a compound, it either worked or didn't work. It was a stochastic process. And uh, ultimately, you, you know, if you made good bets and if you got lucky, uh, you had a drug that worked and otherwise you didn't. Now, the nature of innovation resembles the tech industry. You know, we start with the first generation product and then we come up with a second generation product based on the learnings of the first generation product in the clinic. And that's where we have a challenge at CRISPR Therapeutics where we say, Every two years, we want to introduce the next gen version of the product based on the fundamental thesis we have. For instance, with our CAR T therapies, we have our first generation products in the clinic now. You know, uh, in, in short order, we'll have the next generation product. And in fact, we're working on gen three and gen four already. And same with diabetes. And so, it, you know, I, I actually subscribe quite a bit to rights law, but applies slightly differently in our context. But I think it's going to come into play in a big way. I think let's talk about next gen approaches then, because you mentioned them. Um, that was a lot of questions we got as well, uh, talking about base editing, prime editing, other approaches you may have, maybe using different nucleases, et cetera. Maybe, and maybe we, we got overly excited, so we just jumped right in, but maybe it'd be helpful context for um, anyone listening just to go through a little bit about what is CRISPR, what is we don't like to call them first-gen approaches, but um, maybe the first approaches that came out um, and then go through some of maybe the improvements or um, new modalities and new technologies that we've seen emerging. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, if you look at the last 150 years of biomedical innovation, every 30 years or so, you've had a new wave that's caused a lot of excitement um, and enabled a whole new class of medicines. Um, I would argue the last such wave of excitement came in 1980s when molecular cloning came to the fore with proteins and antibodies as therapeutic modalities. And today we see that nearly half of the pharma market or nearly half the medicines we take are all antibodies or proteins. Um, since then, I think I would argue that CRISPR has been that next wave that started in 2011 
when uh, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna discovered this uh, new modality out from bacteria. Uh, you had Emmanuel, who was a microbiologist, working on strep throat and the bacteria that causes strep throat. And it realized that bacteria are not as dumb as they seem or as we thought they were. They actually have an, their own immune system to protect themselves against viruses. Viruses attack these bacteria and oftentimes 99% of the bacteria are killed, but the ones that survive have an accordion-like region within their genome uh, where they take a snippet out of the viral DNA and store it in that genome. So the next time they're, they're attacked by the same virus, they remember that virus and are able to use molecular scissors to cut the virus and inactivate them. Hence was born this concept of, an, of a sequence-guided molecular scissors. So the, the first instance of how people picture CRISPR is uh, it's a molecular scissors with a barcode. And you can tell the scissors to go anywhere in the genome and make a cut. And that's how you're able to modify uh, the genome. And that's where gene editing revolution is born. Now, the, the other way to look at CRISPR-Cas9 is actually it's a molecular truck associated with the barcode. So if you take the scissors and, and you know, make the scissors less sharp, it's not cutting the genome but he's still carrying a cargo to the particular place on the DNA. And in elegant work and research that was published, people enabled new forms of editing, such as base editing or prime editing or PACE, where you attach a different protein to the CRISPR. And you don't use the CRISPR as a sharp knife. You just use it as a blunt knife to make one cut on the DNA. Uh, and then you can make a single base pair edit or a specific correction. Now, all said and done, all of these are very important innovations and improvements over the basic CRISPR-Cas9, which remains the workhorse. Um, and at CRISPR Therapeutics, we embrace all these new technologies. Um, we, we can do uh, gene disruption with the classical CRISPR-Cas9. We can do gene insertion using classical CRISPR-Cas9. We can do single base pair edits. Uh, we can do 200 base pair corrections. Um, not one of these is a silver bullet. You know, I just want to make sure I contextualize that. You know, I think the narrative around uh, CRISPR 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 is false. It's, it's basically you have different versions of the tool powered off of CRISPR-Cas9 that can attack and, and be used for different indications. So let's say there's an indication where there's a single point mutation and that's all that causes the disease. Then you want to make a single point Base, base pair change, right? But there's only a handful of those indications. Then there's a number of indications where there's a cluster of mutations. You take thalassemia, people think it's one mutation in one gene, it's actually over 200 mutations in one gene. So you can't just do single base pair edits for every mutation, for every patient. It's not inefficient for drug development. So there you wanna do a correction or an alternate form of, of uh, creating or reestablishing a redundant form of hemoglobin like called fetal hemoglobin. So there are many different strategies and the companies that are gonna succeed are the ones that utilize the appropriate strategy for the appropriate indication to create a best-in-class medicine. Uh, but all in all, at a 20,000 foot level, I would say that all the improvements are welcome. This is what moves the field forward faster when there's many players working on it with a lot of capital behind it. You saw other platforms like SIRNA that were developed 20 years ago that had one company 
with very little capital and you didn't move the field forward as fast as you could have. And the pace of technology change was slower. Uh, and I think with CRISPR-Cas9, the fact that the technology is so powerful and the availability of capital has just catalyzed a completely different technology cycle. May, may I ask a, a question on that? Uh, CRISPR-Cas9 being the workhorse, that would suggest that uh, the original patents, uh, and I know uh, CRISPR uh, has them, uh, should pertain to some of these uh, next uh, modalities, uh, base and prime. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. I think the, the foundational CRISPR-Cas9 patents, based on the work of Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, are going to be very important for all these modifications. I think you know you do need the CRISPR-Cas9, whether it's in the form of a scissor to make a double-stranded break uh, or a Nikkei, as it's called, to make a single-stranded break to enable all these advances. Now, it doesn't mean that the new IP that's being generated is not valuable. That's equally valuable. And ultimately, I think uh, there will be, uh, my assumption is there will be cross-licensing in the field um, to enable these therapies to move forward, not just with one company um, but with multiple companies. And that's better for society, to be honest, to, to not have all the IP resident with, with one player. Um, but, but I think the foundational CRISPR-Cas9 IP is what drives all of these innovations. Similar to what we saw in the antibody space. You know, there was Genentech and Amgen, uh, well, Nagenics early on that started in the molecular cloning and protein production space. Uh, and then there were advances, you know, companies like MedRx, uh, Domantis, Cambridge Antibody Technologies all came up with improvements uh, to how you use the protein technology, and they all were relevant as we humanize antibodies, came up with fully human antibodies. But ultimately, I think companies like Genentech took advantage of all the improvements and became the 800-pound gorilla in the space and created transformative value uh, in the cancer space and other therapeutic areas by applying these, by being smart consumers and applying all these advances to the indications in the appropriate fashion. Kathy, thank you for bringing up the Cas9 IP, because that's obviously one of the things that we think about all the time. Um, and also, I'm sure, Sam, something you think about all the time from a strategic perspective. So I was just wondering, how should investors and, and maybe just people who are interested in it think about the Cas9 IP? So. Um, those will be patented until, you know, for the next about 10 years. Um, and, you know, arbitration hasn't really yielded any sort of formal decision. So also it takes about 10 years to put an asset through a clinical trial. So, you know, what's your strategy moving forward to, um, you know, maintain ownership of this IP um, and, and sort of to protect it? Yeah, I think, I think the, the IP in space is very important not just in the form of patents, but also in the form of know-how. You know, if you think about all the manufacturing that we do, there's an art and a science to it. You know, you can have two companies uh, make the same edit in a, in a certain gene. In one case, you have data that's in clinic that looks really good. In another case, it doesn't. Why is that? Because there's uh, the art of how you handle the cells, how you make do the manufacturing, um, and how efficiently you do the manufacturing. And, and all those come into play, both the know-how and the, and the patents. And that's sort of the basis for, one of the basis for sustainable competitive advantage. But if you're an investor, and I'm not, not an investor, it's hard for me to say, but what I would say is that historically the companies that have 
done the best and yielded the most returns are the ones that know how to develop good drugs and make drugs that have a transformative impact on patients, whether it's longevity, whether it's to cure certain diseases, whether it's quality of life. And, and that's the key. I think we want to shape and fashion CRISPR therapeutics as the preeminent company that is doing the high science, that's you know bringing the innovation, bringing next-gen products, being committed to patients in a certain disease. And if you can make transformative therapies, I think that's where the value generation is. If you, if you take the case of Genentech, for instance, uh, at the time they were acquired, it was acquired for close to $100 billion. Uh, they had the foundational IP and that generated a certain cash stream and that was about $6 billion out of the $100 billion of value created. The rest of it was the drugs that they made, right? That said, I think on the IP, uh, I hope that in the long run, rational minds will prevail. You know, there are different camps of IP. We certainly claim the foundational IP is the CRISPR-Cas9 space that's required for anything that you do with gene editing or gene writing. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, in the, to benefit humanity, I think we all need to be rational. And there, there is precedent for how much royalties are exchanged in the long run uh, in terms of uh, CRISPR-Cas9 IP. Uh, but the more drugs we have, it's going to float all boats and all the companies are going to do well that participate in this with the focus on patients and the focus on making drugs that work. Sam, can I just follow up on that and on Ali's question uh, uh, a bit? That 10-year timeline, uh, given the way technology is advancing, is is that going to be shrinking over time in terms of getting to market, do you believe? Absolutely. I think uh, that's why I was talking about the rights law concept of learning in, in this space, which is traditionally, you know, it took about eight to 10 years to get a drug developed, whether it's small molecules or antibodies. Now, what's happened with uh, some of these more modern modalities like CRISPR-Cas9 is that it's been a little bit of a go slow to go fast approach. You know, our you know, thalassemia and sickle cell trials, it took us longer. It took us four years to get to an IND and start a clinical trial. But then once you start a clinical trial, you're starting a pivotal trial and you can get approved that much faster. But overall, you're still talking about six or seven years to approval. But with our CAR-Ts, uh, once you do the first generation uh, and you learn how to understand the safety profile of these CAR-Ts, I think the next approval is going to be that much faster. In fact, in our type 1 diabetes program, uh, we already have Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, and Gen 4 lined up. And with the CAR-Ts, while it took us two years to go from Gen 1 to Gen 2, with diabetes, it's going to take us one year. So that early discovery is faster to get to the clinic. And once you understand how the clinical trials are done, you're going to do those trials faster and get to approval faster as well. So overall, I think, you know, what are the variables ultimately in, in understanding returns for the pharma space. It's, can you do drug development more efficiently, whether it's doing the clinical trials faster and getting to approval faster? Can you do it with less capital? So you're not spending a billion dollars every time and you can do smaller trials because you understand the patients better. Um, and ultimately, are you taking better bets so you have less failures in the system? And I think on all three fronts, it's getting better, which means that the overall return on invested capital profile for the industry is going to look better for small companies as the caveat, because I think big pharma is in a trap where they have such high fixed costs for them to move the needle on return on invested capital is going to take a lot longer 
than what some of the new age companies are doing and what we aspire to do as re redefining the business model for a biopharma company. Sam, I don't, I don't know if you read our recent blog, but um, <laughs> it seems like we're very aligned on how we think. So um, in how we think about therapeutics companies, we talk about a 25% time to market improvement and 25% um, failure rate reduction uh, for a lot of the reasons that you're talking about. And of course, we think obviously a lot of those are related to CRISPR, uh, AI, and next generation sequencing. So I'm just curious if you had any thoughts maybe um, on the idea of AI, do you integrate that at all um, in sort of how you guys work and next generation sequencing? I imagine you do as well. Yeah, you know, I, three to four years ago, I was a bit of a naysayer on AI and biotech. I just felt like there was too much art in, in making drugs. But I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm becoming a convert because uh, I'll give you a couple examples of what we're doing. You know, I think uh, with CRISPR-Cas9, we're doing massively parallel screening. Uh, where we knock out many different genes to see which genes that we knock out can make these CAR Ts stronger uh, or immune cells stronger in killing cancers or ones that avoid um, rejection by the patient's own immune system, right? Used to be that it would take us to do the experiments, it would take us 10,000 mice if you had to knock out all these genes before. But now with the use of big data and smart algorithms, we can do those same experiments with a thousand mice. So we just do massively parallel uh, knockouts in randomized fashion and learn from it to then say which ones are more important. And I think, by the way, we've hit on something that's that's even more impressive than PD-1. You know, PD-1 uh, was a really important development in the immuno-oncology field uh, a few years ago that led to many different drugs in, in cancers. Uh, which basically takes, you know, it's tumors stop drugs from acting on the tumor by applying brakes on them, and you basically take the brakes out. That was PD-1. But we found something that's another knockout in our CAR-Ts that's even better than PD-1 through this massively parallel screening. Now, you can argue that's not quite AI yet because it was just big data and smarter algorithms, but now you have these new methods for protein evolution, and there was a publication, I think, from David Liu's lab recently and some work that we're doing internally in CRISPR where you use phages to evolve proteins and make better Cas9s, for instance. And they learn from themselves and make better and better edits and they evolve. And similarly with AAVs, we're evolving the AAVs, which took evolution a million years to make the best Cas9 in, in, uh, in, in strep, uh, strep throat. It can take uh, you know months now or a couple of years. And so there is this notion of AI uh, and smart analytics that's coming into biotech. Um, I think you still need to understand biology. You can't get away from that and contextualize everything. Because otherwise, if you're just taking blind, blindly looking at the data and starting clinical trials, it may not end well. Um, but I think uh, over time, you're seeing more and more investment from companies like ours into this uh, concept. And we're, we're actually embedding it now in early research as opposed to doing it post hoc. I was just curious, uh, you know, we also got some questions about your manufacturing facility, which um, I think will be really exciting and interesting to visit. But, um, you know, just curious about, um, are you implementing some of those changes into your manufacturing facility, you know, meaning a lot of automation, robotics, um, things of that nature? Um, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I'll talk about some of the simple things that we're doing that have had great yields. 
Um, one of the one of the first uh, business school cases I read was around the airlines and how Swiss Air went bankrupt. You know, I think one of the factors they didn't understand was if you left the planes waiting too long at the gate, uh, the capital you're not use, utilizing capital efficiently, and your ROIC is very low, right? And how does that apply to biotech? You may ask. Such a you know arcane example, but take our manufacturing facilities. You know, when we make our cell therapies. Those cells uh, are processed and that takes seven days, seven to 10 days, right? So if you have a suite dedicated, a GMP suite dedicated to these cells for seven to 10 days, you know, you're, you have to make so many different suites for every product that you're making. Now, but if you have a simple innovation that says, look, we're gonna process the cells in the suite and then have a separate little compartment where they can rest. And then, you know, they can sleep there or mobilize or expand there while we use the suite for another processing. All of a sudden you've like, change the efficiency of your manufacturing by an order of magnitude and your capital efficiency. So our new manufacturing facility in Framingham, which um, um, we're, we're, we just got occupancy off, you know, even though it's only 60,000 square feet, it has the same efficiency as a 600,000 square feet facility that someone else may have developed for autologous therapies. So that's an example of innovation that's, you know, you can argue is quite obvious, but not so obvious sometimes. Uh, but then we also put in place, uh, we're putting investments in place to make the uh, manufacturing more automated. Um, so that's along a whole different axis. How do you create closed system automation to reduce errors? You don't want to have any errors in manufacturing, particularly with patient safety in mind. It makes the regulatory process more reliable because the FDA and the EMA are going to be uh, thrilled with that aspect because they have to deal with quality of manufacturing from a people standpoint, an operator standpoint, if it's all automated, you have that much more reliability. So we're doing quite a bit on the manufacturing front and, and that again establishes a basis for a competitive advantage in the long run. But these are investments we have to make now to enable us to get more out of the system, more out of the platform we built in the future. Got it. Um, so I just wanted to maybe shift gears a little bit. One of the things that um, we talked about in our, our big ideas deck last year was this sort of shift from ex vivo to in vivo therapies. And of course, it's not going to be for, for everything and it's going to depend on the indication. But um, there does seem to be sort of this industry switch to um, looking and, and being sort of excited about in vivo approaches. Um, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this for if you agree. Um, and I don't think we have any um, disclosed in vivo approaches that CRISPR Therapeutics is on. So maybe if you can just, um, you know, discuss anything that you're able to about sort of your in vivo strategy. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are two uh, concepts I think that that people are recognizing. One is um, you can do both ex vivo and in vivo. I think in vivo was considered riskier before, right? And now with some of the early data from uh, that we've seen in some indications, in vivo is entirely possible. And that translation from animal models to humans is almost a one-to-one -one translation, which opens the gate for a flood of in vivo approaches uh, to various indications. Um, but that said, I think there's a lot of value in ex vivo, and I'll expand on that. The second is this notion of thinking of common diseases versus rare diseases. You know, I think early on, most of the calculus around the opportunity set for CRISPR was around rare diseases, you know, monogenic diseases, and you're treating a genetic disease. Now, you know, if you look at CRISPR therapeutics, if you look at the top three 
causes of mortality in the world, you know, you're looking at heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. And we're going to work on all three of those because we want to have broad-based impact beyond the rare diseases as well. Of course, we want to do the rare diseases. But, you know, take an example. Um, you can, if you have organs off the shelf and you can create artificial pancreas that can be implanted to patients whenever you want, you can make, basically make patients completely independent of insulin, right? Um, and, and by the way, I think someone politics will enjoy this. Everyone's complaining about how much insulin costs and the cost of the healthcare system. Here's innovation that can completely change the, the landscape. You know, instead of injecting yourself with insulin every so often, you just implant an artificial pancreas under your skin. And that we're starting clinical trials for that. Well, you know, we've already started clinical trials for that and, and we'll be dosing patients soon. Um, and that can be a very powerful concept. Uh, you know, a second concept where, for instance, you can make edits uh, for pain. You know, people have pain for a long time uh, that's, that's chronic or severe. Can you make edits to pain receptors that makes the world free of opioids or reduce the defense in opioids? Those are transformative things that reimagine medicine, not just for monogenic and rare diseases, but for common diseases that we're talking about. And similar efforts now are happening in the heart disease space where you can actually potentially improve human longevity by 10 to 15 years by reducing the risk of heart disease by making an edit to PCSK9 or other proteins like NHPTL3. Those, are, those, those can be revolutionary for humanity. That said, you know, you, can, you have opportunities both ex vivo and in vivo. You know, I think if I project forward 20 years, you know, what do I see? Is it one predominant over the other? No, I think you'll have both applications. I think you'll, you're going to have organs off the shelf. I think organ transplantation is going to become uh, a big thing because if you have failing organs and you're not diseased, but you just have a failing organ for various reasons, you just replace that organ even when you're older. You can replace your blood system when you're older, you know, with iPS-derived organs. And so all that's going to become more uh, come to the fore. In vivo obviously has the opportunity to treat many different monogenic diseases at its core. And so the in vivo is also a big focus for us. We're working on over 10 indications with in vivo approaches, use, either using viruses or lipid nanoparticles. And we'll talk a lot more about that this year. Um, but I think, you know, using these advanced forms of editing together with these lipid nanoparticles that have now been in over a billion arms, given the COVID vaccines, I think that's de-risked to a large extent. I think you're going to see advances on both fronts. I think, you know, the market had accepted the opportunity around ex vivo early. And so there's a little bit of a shift, but it's going to come back. I think it's, it, I think there's a 50, 50 opportunity with ex vivo and in vivo. So let's talk about xenotransplantation then. Um, when you talk about off-the-shelf organs, I can't help but think about that. Um, and there was really big news this week, which was that the first uh, pig heart was transplanted into a human uh, this week. So uh, obviously those were done through gene editing. Um, so what's your thought on that? Do you have any interest in, in, in maybe going through that or, or going down that path eventually? Um, really exciting for the field either way and, and hopefully for that patient. It's, it's absolutely exciting. I think the pace at which all these things are moving, uh, you know, if you asked us three years ago, people would have said, oh, that's 10 years away. And there's this notion of saying, oh yeah, that's so far away. And I think that's not the case anymore. What people thought was far away is happening very much so right in front of our eyes. And it's exciting. We'll see what the outcomes are for that patient. They only made four edits and it's not clear how long it's going to last. But 
you know, we've used uh, porcine or bovine organs for a long time. You know, most of the heart valves are made, are intricately stitched in manufacturing facilities um, by hand using bovine tissue to put in our hearts. It's not a foreign concept, but generally you didn't have fully functioning organs because, you know, they would get rejected by the human uh, immune system. But now if you can make edits to make them stealth, all of a sudden you have a, you can use animal organs uh, for humans. And we were certainly interested in that. I think the, the bigger bet we're making is that we can artificially recreate these organs using iPS cells. You know, there's two waves that are coming together at this point. One is this whole revolution around regenerative medicine based on the 2012 Nobel Prize for Dr. Yamanaka around iPS cells, where you can take any cell in our body and, and reverse age it into a pluripotent state where they're like an embryo, essentially, and then redirect its fate to become any organ of interest, right? That's very powerful. Now, it never became very applicable because you have to do it one patient at a time, and that's too cost prohibitive and took too long. But if you can do it in mass production because you have CRISPR, and you can make these cells stealth and one cell line applies to every patient, all of a sudden you have organs off the shelf. So we have this effort of pancreas where we make artificial pancreas or the islet cells within the pancreas. Um, we have an effort uh, with liver cells. We make artificial liver cells and liver transplants are very hard to come by. It's a little bit harder with, with organs like the heart because you have a three-dimensional structure that's you know, moving and beating uh, versus just individual cells producing, having unit function. Um, but you're going to see all these come to the fore. And I think um, eventually investing in both parts, you know, xenotransplantation from animals, which are applicable more to organs like the heart uh, versus um, IPS derived organs uh, for pancreas, liver, kidney. I think that's all going to become a reality in, in relatively short order. So we're speaking moonshot ideas. Um, and this was a question from Twitter that I really liked, which is what moonshot ideas is CRISPR trying to solve? Um, so, you know, we've talked about some of them, but maybe if there are others that you want to share. Um, and then I think it was interesting that this person asked, um, what does CRISPR look like in 2030? At ARC, we have a long time viewpoint. So I, I found that really interesting. But they also said to you personally, Sam, why are you leading CRISPR? And where will you be in 2030? Yeah, I, I, I'm having the time of my life. I think uh, I not only am I enjoying it so much and I'm so excited by it. I almost think it's it's a privilege to be in this seat. You know, I just feel like I've been put in place in this time and space to lead one of the most cutting edge platforms in the world. And I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to make sure that it's safe for patients. You know, we don't go cowboy on any of this. Uh, that we de deliberately and systematically develop it. Um, but then we need to have these moonshots and we need to have horizons of development. You know, for us, the first sort of next three, four years represents this battle against cancer. You know, we're 60 years into the more modern war on cancer uh, ever since Dr. Sidney Farber declared it in the 60s. And we've thrown the kitchen sink at it. We've thrown all these chemicals, in, in fact, some wartime chemicals at cancer we made a dent, but not as much as we, we should have, you know, or we could have. But now we have this notion of smart edited cells against cancer. That's sort of our first wave that could be huge in the fight against cancer and curing cancer. It's no longer a death sentence. Our next wave of innovation is around organs off the shelf. 
and what I talked about, the pancreas, liver, et cetera, and many more organs. And then beyond that, I think we have, ultimately, this is going to play into longevity. I think um, odds are that, you know, interventions we do with common diseases like cardiovascular diseases uh, can be preventive. And if you have uh, preventive edits that could give you, reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, reduce the risk of diseases like NASH in the liver, uh, you're starting to extend human life. And I think all this is going to play into that sort of forefront as well on longevity. That's not, you know, that, that may be, may seem very distant, uh, but, and, and a moonshot, but actually is not that far away. Um, in the meantime, we do want to make sure that we continue to treat one rare disease at a time and, and get as many of those as possible, not just us, but other companies as well, so that patients suffering from terrible diseases like GSD-1A, like sickle cell disease, all have a cure in front of them. These are diseases that have been ignored too long. You know, sickle cell is the oldest known molecular disease. We've known it for 110 years now as a disease. And over 60 years since we elucidated that it's a genetic or molecular disease, it's about time that we have a therapy for this patient population. So, Sam, may I ask a, a follow-on question there? Uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jennifer Doudna uh, a couple of years ago for one of our summits. And it was during the time, right after the CRISPR twins uh, controversy in China, and um, and uh, and it was at a time when the safety of gene editing was being questioned. And of course, Jennifer, being one of the inventors, took that that uh, risk very seriously. Uh, but there were a number of trials, including yours, uh, starting and uh, uh, in place around that time, uh, and they were growing. The number of them was growing. And I asked her the question: Is no news good news? meaning these trials are continuing apace and they would be stopped if, if there were safety issues and so forth. How many trials are in place today for rare diseases and others? Uh, and um, would you agree that today no, no news is good news as well? Um, yeah, I think, you know, Jennifer, obviously a, a tremendous role to play in this whole revolution in, uh, of CRISPR-Cas9. Um, but at this point, you know, the companies have a lot more experience in terms of bringing these into the clinic. Um, at CRISPR Therapeutics, we've dosed over 120 patients at this point. I think total, it's hard to say how many patients have been dosed in China, but my guess is for all the things that are visible, there are about 150 patients or so dosed worldwide with CRISPR-based therapies, and we've dosed 120 of them. Um, and, and I think when, when she says no news is good news, that refers to any unwanted edits that we're seeing in the genome. You know, we don't want to see any unwanted edits. There was a lot of fear about double standard breaks, about off-target editing. But what people realized is, you know, with all these technology platforms early on, um, you can show that they're, they're, they're not uh, optimized yet. You know, at that point, there is certainly some off-target that you could see for some common edits that you were making. But at the same time, if you industrialized the process, did a robust analysis, um, you could find guys that have no off-target effects. Same now applies to the sphere around translocations and double-stranded breaks. But if you do it in a robust industrial fashion, you don't see any of that in patients. And we have enough patient experience now to say that, gosh, this is 
you know, relatively safe if done in the highest quality fashion. And that's why I do worry sometimes about, you know, the, the, the nature of CRISPR is that it's very uh, democratized. You know, every country and every uh, part of the world can do it. And so you are going to see trials in, I think, parts of the world that are not fully regulated or less regulated where you could see an unfortunate event. But at this point, I think that risk has gone down dramatically. We kind of understand uh, the effects of off-target. We understand how to prevent that. Um, but as we go into newer applications, uh, there's still safety risks. For instance, embryonic gene editing is something that where we still haven't, don't have a full handle on it. So I don't think we're ready for prime time there. And there could be safety risks that are unknown if, if someone tries to edit there. So, so I think, but as far as somatic diseases are concerned, uh, you know, three years out after your conversation, I think the risk is dramatically lower. And um, we, I don't have the exact number of clinical trials, but I know that in our work from last year, we, we looked at clinicaltrials.gov and we looked at gene therapy and gene editing trials. And we did notice that they've increased fivefold since 2010. And that um, according to our estimates, and of course, with what we're kind of talking about before with that 25% time to market improvement and 25% failure rate reduction, um, we'll see, as we estimate, about 170 gene therapies or gene editing um, therapies that would be approved and maybe commercialized during the next decade. So, you know, just to put some numbers behind what you're saying, Sam, uh, clearly, you know, there's massive opportunity. And as these go through the clinic, we hope that, you know, there'll be um, increased learnings as well. Um, but also based on this sort of massive increase, do you think that gene therapy and gene editing could become sort of a dominant form of therapy, maybe, you know, uh, compared to other forms like small molecules or biologics? Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, at, at an ARM conference um, last year, I said, you know, by 2032, I expect at least a third of the entire pharma market or all the innovative medicines market to be some form of cell and gene therapy. And obviously there are naysayers to that, uh, but you're seeing, you're already seeing some therapies on there like gene therapies for SMA, um, and siRNA therapies that are already having reasonable and substantial revenues and growing. And so this is only going to continue. And then you're going to see the CRISPR wave of therapies. And then all of a sudden you're in a, in a different realm altogether. So I, I think it's going to become, a, you know, a very important part of medicine. Uh, I don't know that it's going to completely supplant antibodies and small molecules right away. I think there is a place for all modalities. Uh, there are new platforms coming in like protein degradation, for instance, that don't fall neatly into the cell and gene therapy bucket, but they are advanced modalities that will have a place in the system. Um, so, but, but, but suffice it to say that cell and gene therapies will be at least a third, if not more of the pharma market. And every pharma company is going to have to have a cell and gene therapy unit or some efforts in it. Otherwise you risk being left behind. We, we talked about this or touched on it at the beginning, um, but maybe just to go back to it a little bit. So in terms of M&A for JP Morgan, maybe some people were disappointed, but, um, you know, looking at the balance sheet, uh, thinking about CRISPR therapeutics in the future, what are your thoughts on sort of M&A as you kind of go into the year with a, with a healthy balance sheet um, and maybe eyes on new technologies? Well, uh, at CRISPR therapeutics, our goal is to become a multi-hundred billion dollar company, if not a trillion dollar, 
truly know our company. I think, you know, in the long run, we want to be standalone and we want to have impact on humanity in a big way. And in the process, also build a company that's a different business model or different efficiency than what we've seen in the past. You know, we don't want to just grow into another big pharma company. I think we want to grow into an innovative company that's putting most of the dollars that you're getting from commercialized products back into research to impact even more diseases, uh, but at the same time, have the ability to be sustainable. I think we've talked about improving the probability of success. We've talked about shortening clinical trial time, but I think you know one of the disappointments or one of the reasons for what we're seeing in the market right now is the lack of fiscal discipline. You know, there have been so many companies formed, so many IPOs, and what's important is that people form companies that are sustainable and can see it all the way through. You know, if you just throw money behind every idea in a very distributed fashion, uh, I think what you're going to see is you are going to see failures because people are not going to play the experiment through. You know, this, this notion before was of small molecule development was let's be fast to fail. Let's throw 10, 10 drugs in the hopper, fail fast, and the ones that succeed will succeed, and that's capital efficiency. That's no longer the paradigm. The paradigm now is if you're going after something, you learn the clinic, then you make improvements, then you go with the next gen. You make improvements, go with the next gen. And that's how you're going to get to where you want to get to. And for that, you need a capital base that can allow you to sustain that effort once you made a fundamental thesis bet. Um, and I think, I think the M&A portion right now, I think part of what we're facing in the industry is there are way too many companies going after single bets or single ideas that are not that are subscale, and some of them will succeed, some of them will fail. And I think uh, you're going to see some consolidation in the space, whether it's in the form of big pharma acquiring smaller companies or smaller companies merging together, because some scale is necessary. Now it doesn't mean that there's going to be one 800-pound gorilla that's going to do all cell and gene therapy. You know, you're not going to ever have that, I don't think. But you could end up with five or ten dominant players, just like you saw in the antibody space. Sam, I just realized that you're you're giving such great answers and I'm so engaged that I just realized you did not answer the question about where will Sam be in 2030 and why <laughs> are you excited about um, being the leader of CRISPR Therapeutics? No, I'm, I'm humble. Um, you didn't want to talk about yourself. <laughs> no, no, thank you. I, I, you know, I think uh, um, I, I grew up in India, did my college education there, came to the U.S., uh, to grad school with a firm intention and goal of becoming a professor. Somewhere along the way, I got very interested in business and uh, ended up at McKinsey and subsequently uh, was fortunate enough to end up at CRISPR Therapeutics and now have the great fortune of, of leading this organization. I think for me, um, you know, I'm firmly ensconced and I, I want to see this all the way through um, to, to that um, preeminent at scale company that we've talked about before. Uh, and for me, it combines this challenge of science and business. You know, I'm a scientist at heart. And I love digging into the programs and understanding the nuances of the genetics and, and, and how we're approaching it. At the same time, you know, what's the business construct? How do you make sure there's enough capital? There's capital efficiency. There's that return to the market, uh, you know, making sure that the entire system is, is uh, value is being created for everyone, you know, including the health system. You know, you can't forget CMS, Medicare, uh, and, and other stakeholders, the providers and payers. You know, if if 
we have success, we'll have CAR-Ts on a global basis. In fact, we'll save the system costs by making allogeneic CAR-Ts less expensive than autologous CAR-Ts. And all these things excite me. I think the notion of bringing change globally, of bringing science and business together, um, and ultimately doing good for humanity. Um, you know, you got these rating agencies ask us, you know, what are you doing on the ESG front? And I, I, I say, you got to be kidding me. You know, we're, we're solving social inequities by creating medicines for sickle cell disease. We're making medicines cheaper for the entire world. We're taking medicines places around the globe where they could never get to before. Uh, and, and this is the greatest calling we can have. So I'm, uh, I'm excited about what the next few years will bring. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll be doing gene editing and CRISPR-based therapies in 2030. Yeah, Sam, I, uh, I remember the first time I met you, uh, I could see the passion uh, that you had for CRISPR-Cas9. We were, we were, this was a, you know, we, we, you, were, um, you were sure this was going to work. Uh, and so the scientist in you, uh, I saw coming out. And, and yet at the same time, I, I did see this businessman and, and your conviction in where gene editing, gene therapies uh, was going to take CRISPR and the world uh, was into the trillions of dollars. And I, I remember at the time thinking, oh, wow, what a dreamer. <laughs> you know, let's just get through some of these trials first. Uh, uh, but you saw this early and you have been thinking in a very big way, very expansively. And I, and I think uh, you and uh, and your company and companies like yours are are going to change, uh, transform healthcare. Thank you, Kathy. That, that that's uh, appreciate those words. And I, I think I, I'm excited for the world in general. I think there's we live in a world where corporations and companies are pushing the frontiers forward. You know, used to have governments behind these, like the Manhattan projects and other big scientific projects that it where it required scale. And now you have companies that are going to space companies that are changing the energy balance in the world with companies like Tesla. And I think, you know, and people forget, I think, you know, back in the day, you know, Suez Canal was built by an individual and a company. It was a private company. It wasn't a government effort. Uh, and we did great things in the past. And now I think with the environment that we have where there is, you know, retail participating, you know, every person in the world can participate in this innovation. You know, it used to be that you had to be an investment manager to be able to even hear from me or hear from companies and or talk to Elon. But now with Twitter and the ability of Robinhood and the ability for everyone to understand it, it's gonna change how we invest in things. So as Canal and Panama Canal, by the way, most of the investments came from the common people to take on something as monumental as, as building a canal back in the day. And I think if we have that same aspiration and say, we wanna change the world and hear all the things we wanna do, with the support, not just from the financial ecosystem as we have now, but from the from everyone, I think that just changes how you can dream. You can dream big now, and you can actually make it a reality. I think. Sorry if there's any drilling noises, but um, I think I think that is a, a good way to end off on a on a very positive note on uh, the impact that gene editing could potentially have in the future. Um, and so just wanted to thank Kathy and Sam for joining us today. Um, and uh, yeah, this, is, this has been really informative. So thanks. Thank, thank you, Ali. Thank you so much, Sam. All right. Take care. Bye-bye now. 
Arc believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that Arc believes to be reliable. However, Arc does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from Arc. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.